Yeah, good. And I just turned on my video, so I'll ask that again and you can answer it. The thousand years are when? Between the ascension and the second coming. Yeah, between the ascension and the second coming. Uh, and we can see that defined and, and framed for us in, in Revelation. Um, and then we get to verse uh, 7, and it talks about uh, what what's the time what's the time stamp on this verse 7 what's it tell us yeah when the thousand years are over okay now remember in, in revelation 6 in the the fifth seal um john looks and he gets this this vision he sees heaven and whom does he see the dead saints yeah circled around the throne very good and they ask, who, who's there at the throne? Who's sitting on the throne? Jesus. Jesus is. And what do they ask? What are these dead saints who have, have died for their faith? What do they ask Jesus? How long until you avenge us? How long till you avenge our blood? Yeah. And what's Jesus' answer to them? When everybody's a little longer. Until everyone's, all your brothers are saved. Yeah. Uh, you know, be patient. Wait a little while longer until all your brothers are saved. I brought in all your brothers. And so when the thousand years is over, what do we know about the saved at that point when the thousand years are over? All that should be saved are saved. Yeah, that's happened. All, all that, that um, the Father has given Jesus, as he says in uh, John 6, uh, 37 through 39, um, have come to him. And uh, and so he's about ready to do what, according to Revelation 6? At the end of the thousand years, he's promised those who are circling his throne that he would do something in the future. And what would he do? Avenge their blood. Yeah. And so now we've come to the time, the end of the thousand years, where all the elect have been brought in, all the people that the Father has given Jesus, whom he will raise up at the last day, he says in John 6, um, uh, that Jesus will avenge the blood of those who have been killed for their, their faith. Um, and so this is it. The thousand years are over. Uh, we read about earlier in, in Revelation 20, thousand years is this period where Satan is bound from deceiving the nations. But in other parts, it talks about how Satan's deceiving the nations. So how did we, how did we make sense of that? How is that qualified? In what way... Let me ask more clearly. In what way is Satan bound during this thousand years? Yeah, can't deceive the elect. Um, what's that parable Jesus told about the binding of the strong man, Satan? Yeah, Jesus has bound the strong man and he's plundering his house. Okay, and so this happens, we see in Revelation 12. That, that Satan is cast down and he's bound that he might not deceive the nations like the nations had been deceived during Old Testament times. By and large, it was just descendants of Jacob who were saved. Just a few um, people who came to Jerusalem from there, like Rahab and, and, and uh, Ruth, um, some others, but, but largely the nations have been deceived. But now... Jesus ascends, Satan's cast down to the earth, and it's declared to us in Revelation 12 that he's bound from deceiving the nations, Revelation 20 um, here. Um, and, Satan, and Jesus is doing this. He's, he's gathering in all the brothers of those who've died in faith from Adam forward. Um, okay, any questions? any questions about that? So Jesus is plundering the house of Satan. He's bound him from deceiving the nations and he's plundering his house, taking what he wants. Oh, that's a toilet brush. I don't want that. <laughs> okay. And, and, you know, really that's, that's Paul's language, right? And Revelation, uh, or sorry, Re Romans 9 or 11, I forget which one. He, you know, some vessels are for honorable purposes and some vessels are for dishonorable purposes. Um, and that's all uh, the Father's doing. The Father saves some. And so Jesus goes through the earth throughout the ages and 
and saves those some, all that the Father has given me, John 6, 37. He goes and saves them, sends them his spirit, regenerates them so they have eyes to see and hearts to understand, ears to hear. Okay. Um, so we're at this time, at verse 7, when the thousand years are over. Um, and so let's read 7 and 8, and then we'll talk about this for a while. Um, let's see. Um, Allie, would you read 7 for us? Are you, are you there enough? Did you see it? And then Brenda, 8. And John, go ahead with verse 9 there. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Okay. Um, so uh, we, we've got uh, the um, Satan, verse 7. What's happening with him in verse 7? He's being released from where? His prison. What does Peter in 2 Peter 2, we talked about this last week, if you can think back to last week, what is Peter in 2 Peter 2, um, what's he talk about there as a place where, well, let me, let me just stop there to see how much you can pull up. If not, I'll keep going. Oh, it's a gloomy dungeon for holding Hell is a gloomy dungeon for holding the souls. A dungeon. Uh, what's the synonym of dungeon that we see here in Revelation that we just read? Prison. Okay. Yeah. Um, so verse 7. Satan's released from his prison. Hell. The. What's another synonym for hell and the prison? The abyss. Good. Um, hell. Hell. Um, released from the abyss um, and then he goes out and something that was true verse 8 something that was true during the thousand years won't be true anymore what's that in verse 8 just read it verse 8 he goes out to deceive the nations yeah um, and, and so uh, we, we see that this, this era of bringing people in, of saving people, is over. A thousand years is over. The period of time where Satan is, is bound from deceiving the elect from the nations is over. And now he's just broadly deceiving the nations. All, all who are left, there's no restraint that Satan's given anymore. No sense that he's bound anymore okay yeah faith all the elect are gathered um and and by gathered we mean they have come to faith we don't know at, at this point whether um it, it's who's uh, it, it, it this seems to be uh, again lots of events happening all at once um this seems to be you kind of like has the physical resurrection happened Kind of not yet. Yes, now. <laughs> it's kind of like that. And we'll see as we, we go on here. Um, good question. Um, so all the elect have been gathered. That is, they've been given faith. They've been saved. Uh, whether they're still, um, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, whether they're still alive on earth at the return of Christ. And they're gathered in that way like us. We're gathered right now but we haven't been gathered up to the throne of jesus in heaven because we haven't died yet um and so we're all we're all gathered um and the thousand years is over there will be believers on the earth and unbelievers on the earth um and um uh, satan will go out and deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth that's an expression like from day to night, from A to Z, from Alpha to Omega, um, four corners of the earth, a, a common expression in Scripture, uh, which was probably used outside of Scripture as well. 
four corners of the earth. Um, if you can imagine a, a flat map, four corners of the earth, get it? We'd say the same kind of thing. Okay, so every, you know, it's like um, verse uh, 12 in Revelation. I saw the dead, great and small. You know, it's from A to Z, Alpha to Omega, all of them. Okay, so all the earth, Satan is released from his prison, from the abyss, will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. And then he says this funny thing here, uh, Gog and Magog, or Gog and Magog. Um, and uh, to, um, to do what with the, four pe the people who are deceived, not believers, deceived people from the four corners of the earth, everybody. What's he do with them? What's he doing with them? Yeah, gathering them for battle. What battle do you think this is? Final battle, Final battle. yeah. Gathers them for battle. Um, so you can see just from here how, how Revelation just goes from vision to vision to vision. And in each vision, you've got some segment of ascension to descension, second coming. Um, that's the main um, historical... Uh, um, parameters, uh, the main historical parameters were given in most of the visions. Sometimes it starts the ascension and, and just goes into the thousand years and doesn't get back to the second coming. That's a lot of revelation. Sometimes it starts in the thousand years and goes to the new heavens and new earth. And, and so you have different, different cuts, you know, of the same pie. So think of each vision as a pie and each vision cuts a different amount of the pie and puts it out on a serving tray and says, let's look at this now. Uh, and so if you look at uh, verses 11 through 15, we've got the, the slice of the pie there that's really two, two, maybe three things. What do you see in 11 through 15? Three, three parts of, of the big pie not the whole pie is included. You don't see the ascension of Jesus here. Um, you don't see the thousand years here. What do you see in what segments of the pie of this time era do we see in 11 through 15, for example? Bodily resurrection, Bodily resurrection of all men. Okay, final judgment. Got two of the three. Okay, final uh, uh, um, dispensing of the wicked, of those who haven't believed. Cast into the lake of fire, verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire, like death and Hades had been. Um, and, and so you see those three segments. And so here's a vision, 11 through 15, and really it goes down through into 21, the believers that... but that adds some more stuff to it but but you see that not every vision includes every segment of history um one kind of exceptional thing just throw throw back to uh verse uh, chapter 12 but just turn back there Okay, so that's the woman and the dragon. Where does this start? If you remember this, and if you don't, just read it. Where did, yeah, and, and you see where Jesus' birth here. See a woman with 12 stars on her head, and she gives birth to a child. And so here we're even in Old Testament history, 12 tribes of Israel, and the birth of Jesus. And then you've got here, Jesus is, Satan goes after Jesus. Uh, but Jesus is snatched up to heaven. And so you see here, Old Testament Israel, birth of Jesus, cross, uh, resurrection, ascension occurs here. And so, you know, Revelation 12 even dips back into, old, into the Old Testament. But generally, in, in these visions throughout uh, uh, Revelation, vision after vision after vision, I don't know how many there are, let's say 30. Um, you've got some segment being shown and doesn't always start 
It doesn't always start with the ascension and end with the new heavens and new earth. It's here, or it's here, or in Revelation 12, it's, it goes up to the thousand years, but it starts with the Old Testament. Um, and so back to, back to 20 now. So notice in 6, we've concluded one segment. Um, look at the end of six. Where, where does that segment conclude? Yeah, a thousand years. It just it just leaves it. They will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay. Um, it talked about the first resurrection up there. That is, what's the first resurrection? Souls, Souls of believers are resurrected and, and they're with Jesus by his throne. They become part of that scene that John sees in Revelation 6, believers around the throne. Um, but, but this ends with a thousand years. And you could do a fade out there and, you know, tomorrow night, you know, and, and you come back with, with verse 7 um, there, when a thousand years are over. That's a big time gap there. Okay, so there's a break there. So th he just says, this happens. Here's what I saw in our day. There are souls of dead believers there. They're around the throne. And they'll reign with Christ for a thousand years. And he's talking to people of his age, A.D. 95. And then he jumps forward a thousand years, which we know was 1,095. Just kidding. We're in 2023. Okay, So a thousand years is this long period of time. You know, uh, how long will you do that till the cows come home? How long will you do that? For a thousand years. You know, how many people were there? A hundred million. <laughs> a billion trillion were there. So that's, that's the expression. And that's how we speak in real life. And God speaks that way, especially in the prophets. Okay, and, and Revelation is a book of the prophets. Consider it that way. Um, and so a thousand years are over. So he jumps forward and gives us a new set of stuff to think about. Now no longer dead souls of believers reigning with Christ for a thousand years, whatever that means, whatever sense we're reigning with Christ for a thousand years, could mean believers are reigning over their sin natures by the Spirit of God that dwells in them. It could mean uh, dead souls in, in heaven are, are sitting in the, the council of God and Jesus is saying, shall I do this? Shall I save Jim now? And, and believers say, if it sounds good to you, yeah. <laughs> and we participate in that, never disagreeing with Jesus, our king, who knows everything good. Are we reigning in that sense when we die? Maybe. It just doesn't say much in Scripture about what Jesus means and what John means when he says we'll reign with him. We don't know. Um, but the things I've said there are things that wouldn't violate other things that we see in Scripture. Okay. Um, but now a thousand years are over. Um, Satan's released from his prison, goes out and deceives the nations in the four corners of the earth. So it's a global thing. Um, and the four corners of the earth are described as what two nations? Yeah, Gog and Magog. There, sorry, that's Magog is really true. I've said it Magog all my life because I listened to Jimmy Swaggart's Revelation cassette tapes back in 1986, and all the charismatics on on uh, uh, Christian TV were saying Magog at that time. But it's really Magog there. So I listened to all those tapes. I think I went through them twice. So I know my dispensational eschatology. I know when Jesus is coming back. Jimmy Swaggart told me, and Jim Baker, listen to his too. Um, so, see, I'm a recovering <laughs> charismatic dispensationalist, pre-mill, pre-whatever, pre uh, pre-mill, pre-trip. Um, yeah, so uh, Gog and Magog, and, and again, to do what? You've answered this already. Gather them for battle. So all the unbelieving, all the non-elect, now that all the elect have been brought in, as Jesus promised he would do before he avenged the blood of those who died for their faith. Um, 
to gather them for battle. Now, John has shown this in previous chapters. Um, but, but here he shows it again, as he does in Revelation, repeats things over and over. So let's talk about uh, Gog and Magog, or Magog, um, there. Um, <laughs> uh, and this doesn't just get invented by John in Revelation. Uh, now, um, Sierra Carson and Sydney's mom knew she wasn't going to be here because she's in Boone area with Sydney and her parents. So she started Savannah. What did I say? She's with Savannah in Boone. Sydney's out there. Um, and so she started studying this. And uh, But uh, anyone know where Gog and Magog comes from in scripture? Yes, study notes, Joyce. <laughs> If Joyce would have just said that, but but she looked sheepish when she said that, so I know she checked her little footnote there. So, um, uh, yeah, Ezekiel 38. So go ahead and turn back there, Ezekiel 38. So Ezekiel's the you know the last big big prophet. Um, so not too far be, before Matthew. Uh, he's right before Daniel, but he's after Isaiah and uh, Jeremiah. 38. Um, Ezekiel 38. 616? 615? 615. And now, um, before we look at this, um, to understand um, Ezekiel 38, we have to understand uh, the, the prophets and the, the books of the prophets and how to interpret prophets. And it's been a long time since we've been in, in prophets and we were in the prophets a couple of times. We did two different... Um, Sunday school series on, on the prophets um, there, but it's like I said, it's been a long time, so we'll um, we'll we'll review uh, here how we take prophets. And remember, Revelation is a, a prophetic book. When you read Revelation, it reads just like and uses language just like um, Isaiah through Malachi. It's the same kind of stuff, and so. When we read Revelation, if we read Revelation like a newspaper instead of like an Old Testament prophet, now if you're in, in dispensationalism or, or, or charismatic um, eschatology or end times, eschatology is the big word for that, um, then um, you read the prophets like a newspaper too. You read the prophets as if they were written to people in 2023 instead of reading the prophets as if they were written by... Hosea, Joel, Amos, Micah, Nahum, Jonah, um, to the people of their age. Um, and so um, prophecy most of the time is, is seen um, incorrectly. Um, and uh, we use the term, uh, and I, I use the term jokingly too, um, in, incorrectly, knowing each time, should I really be joking in this way because I'm just extending the error um, like when I when I uh, uh, say uh, something and then later it comes true, I say, "Ah, I'm a prophet." Um, so here's our here's our um, here's our question here for prophecy. When we're looking at Old Testament prophecy, um, two two possibilities that I'll put before us. Uh, one, um, who can who can read this handwriting and, and read this for us? Choice. Okay, and so that's one thing that prophecy can be, um, or prophecy could be this. And who can read this for us? Yeah, a warning or a promise of a potential future. Notice the two underlined words there. Those are the important words. Because prophecy. Uh, when we read the Old Testament prophets, are they predicting a certain future or are they warning of a potential future or making promises of a potential future? Yeah, and it's, it's this. Uh, but this is where the stuff is in the Christian bookstore and on Christian radio and on Christian TV. And this is why 
you have to do incredible interpretive gymnastics to make the prophets be true um, if, you, if you're reading things in this way. A, a prediction, and, and why, so you're, you're looking at um, Isaiah, and he's literally told us that he's talking to Ahaz, the, the king of Judah. Okay, Ahaz was from um, uh, 735 uh, to 716 B.C., and, and uh, uh, Isaiah's talking to him around 734, 732. And it literally says this in Isaiah 7, that Isaiah's talking to Ahaz and uh, going to uh, um, rescue um, Judah from the um, uh, Syrian um, and Northern Israel coalition, Northern Israel and Syria are going to come, or Aram, are going to come down against uh, Judah and against Jerusalem. And Isaiah goes to uh, Ahaz, the king, and says, don't you dare go to Assyria and form an alliance to protect yourself from Aram and northern Israel. Don't you dare. Those two kings are like uh, 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 wicks that are about to be snuffed out. Okay? Don't you dare form an alliance. And this was against the law to form an alliance. What were the kings of God's people to do when God's, uh, when God's uh, enemies came against them in the promised land? What were the kings to lead the people in doing? Cry out to the Lord. Crying out to God. We trust not in princes or horses or chariots. Recall that in the Psalms. Um, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Okay, and so that's what the good kings do. Like David, he's always turning to the Lord. Shall I attack them now? Or um, Hezekiah, when he's surrounded um, uh, by the, the um, Assyrian army, um, and they, he leads the people in crying out to God, and, and God answers them. Um, you've got Asa and Jehoshaphat do the same, do the same thing. Um, but then in the middle of this, Isaiah gives Isaiah gives Ahaz a sign. Now Isaiah is engaged to be married, and uh, and he says that uh, this woman that I'm engaged to um, is going to give birth to a child, and she's going to have a symbolic name. Remember what that name is? We talk about it at Christmas time. Emmanuel. Now to Ahaz, here's what this means. By the time Isaiah gets married, and by the time this virgin that Isaiah is going to marry has a child, both of the kings, the king of Aram and the king of northern Israel, will be dead and no longer be a threat. And Isaiah says to Ahaz, ask for a sign. But Ahaz doesn't want a sign because he doesn't want the truth. Now, when a prophet asks you for a sign, what should you do? Ask for a sign. The prophet has just asked. You th says, ask for a sign. And Ahaz says, oh, no. Yeah, he acts humble. Oh, no, I won't ask for a sign. When a prophet tells you to do something, what should you do? Do it. Do it. But Ahaz doesn't want the truth. Ahaz wants to do what he wants to do. Ahaz is one of the wicked kings of Judah. And so he says, I will not ask for a sign. And Isaiah says, God's going to give you a sign anyway. And here's the sign. When, when the virgin gives birth to a child, he will be called Emmanuel. And that's going to be in your face. God would have been with you. God would have rescued you. But instead, you're going to get run over. Okay. Now, if you don't understand potential futures that God will potentially be with you and protect your land if you just ask for a sign and turn to him and don't ask Assyria to be your ally. Okay? Um, that was the potential future for Ahaz, that God would be with him as symbolized by this child. Okay? Now, remember, all scripture comes true in Jesus. Right? And so God is with his people when Jesus is incarnated. And Jesus is incarnated in an actual virgin, not just someone who is 
a virgin at the time when Isaiah was speaking. When Isaiah was speaking, he wasn't married yet. He was engaged. Okay? And so she was a virgin, but it was not a miraculous birth. He got married. She gave birth to a child. And so sometime like a year later, this child would be born. And this child would be this Emmanuel child. Um, God will be God will be with us. God is with his people. He protects his people. And so that becomes true in the ultimate sense. Jesus says all the Old Testament is a shadow of me. Moses spoke of me. The law, the, the Psalms, and the prophets speak of me. And so God comes true on his promise in the ultimate sense when he gives his people the Emmanuel child, Jesus, who is God, second person of the Trinity, with them, come to save them from all their enemies. Okay, now this was going to be true back with Isaiah, back with Ahaz. God was going to come just like he had come with David, just like he had come with um, um, uh, uh, Asa and, and Jehoshaphat um, and rescue his people from their physical enemies back then. Uh, but he comes and deals with the ultimate enemy, not the Romans, but Satan, death and Satan, um, when he comes with Jesus. And so if, if you don't, if you think it's a prediction of a certain future, you know, you're going to do some gymnastics there um, and you're going to say, all of a sudden, Isaiah quits talking to Ahaz and gives us a prediction. Woo! Mortar shell. Skip all that history. Jesus, over here. And we say, and Ahaz says, thanks Isaiah for something, to, for telling me something that wouldn't happen for 400 years. I'm going to use that and it's really going to be helpful. No, Isaiah speaking to Ahaz was something that's actually going to be helpful for him. Isaiah doesn't talk to Ahaz and then, you know what a mortar shell is? You know, think civil war, you know? They, they, they throw those, it's the cannon fire, you know, and it skips the battlefield, it skips over the battlefield and just gets to the other side and kind of wears them down before you charge with the troops. Okay. And so, you know, we don't treat prophecy like mortar shell, like, oh, let's skip 400 years of history because God speaks truth to his people when, when they need it. When they need it. Okay. So that's prophecy. God is speaking to his people when they need it. God always speaks. He always inscripturates a book of scripture. He always gives a prophet to the people when they need certain truth or encouragement or warning right then. Otherwise, he would have given the whole book of the Bible to Adam. Here, learn this. Everything you need to know. Why does God inscripturate over... 1500 years through all these different authors and all these different places it's because the basic law of love god and love neighbor we need a little more detail sometime and so when god's people need a little more detail about how to apply love god love neighbor in their circumstances when they're really getting it wrong he sends a prophet or he inscripturates a book of scripture and gives them the truth they need to get them through their day. Okay. And so we don't, we don't throw mortar shells. We say, what did this prophet mean when he said these words? Who was he talking to? What were their circumstances? And therefore, how would they apply this? So we get that first. And then later on, us, 2023, Jesus gives us the clue. And the book of Hebrews gives us the clue. All of it ultimately speaks of Jesus. Is Jesus the God with us? Yes. Does Jesus save us from our enemies? Yes. Uh, should we look to other things to save us? Not Assyrians today, but other things to save us and make us well and keep us safe besides God? Or should we cry out to God? Same today. We cry out to God. Okay. Um, and so this is, you know, think of Jesus on the cross. Okay. What does he do when he's, first of all, being persecuted and going through his trials? Does he make alliances with the Pharisees or with Pilate or with Herod? 
No. What does he do? We see it on the cross. Cries out to his father. Cries out to his father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Okay, this is what a king of God's people was to do. To cry out to God, not to form alliances to save his skin. Okay? So it all gets to Jesus. So we don't worry about that when we're looking in the Old Testament. It all gets to Jesus, but we will misinterpret the Old Testament if we if if we're saying, well, this prophet who was 700 years before Jesus is actually talking about Jesus to this person who's standing in front of him. And this person says, gee, thanks a lot. <laughs> Not going to do me any good, you know, until I'm dead and gone. Um, so um, when we're looking at uh, in, uh, Matthew, you had a question. I did. Uh, so I understand the distinction uh, you're making with prophecy, but yeah. can you explain how, for instance, in Revelation, if that's a book of prophecy, they're not saying that's potential future, because that's all certain. Correct? Yeah. So is every every prophecy has a, a degree of certainty to it, yeah. and and we'll talk about we'll we'll talk about um, delineate some things that you're getting at in a little bit, but keep going. Yeah, I was just going to say. So is it accurate to, to to kind of qualify it and say the details are potential? The end result is certain. Yes. Pretty pretty much in yeah. the Old Testament. Yeah. Um, and so we're here. God, so so the, um, what we need to understand, what makes sense of prophecy for us, what prophecy was, is that God gives warning or promise of a potential future. Um, now, Look at Jeremiah 18 now. Just keep your finger or something in Ezekiel 38 or don't and turn back to Ezekiel 38 later. But look at Jeremiah 18. There are a number of places where we see this, where God says, here's how you should handle prophecy. Here's how you should handle my word. When I come to you with a warning about something, when I say something's going to happen, here's what you should do. So uh, Jeremiah, so just, just before Ezekiel, Lamentations in Ezekiel, um, Jeremiah 18. Um, we also see this in Ezekiel 33, 2 Kings 22. Uh, just uh, we, we can see this in um, Ezekiel 18, Daniel 4, Hosea 11, 1 Samuel 23, Zephaniah 3, uh, Jeremiah 23. But here's the principle. Um, Jeremiah 18, that, that we'll just look at one place here. Um, verse 5. Um, through verse 10 is what we'll what we'll read and let's uh, Elijah can you read verse uh, 5 and then we'll go back to uh, um, Jeff and Ashley for um, 6 and 7 um, there and then 8 there I see a Blake there and um, then uh, 9 let's come across the front row here Betsy on that way so we're doing 5 through 10 Ezekiel, or sorry, Jeremiah 18, 5 through 10. Okay, let's deal with this a little bit. When you're doing pottery and you stink at pottery like me, and you shape it a certain way and it doesn't look right, um, what can you do if you're dealing with pottery? Reshape it. Reshape it. You can change it. Yeah, you don't have to stick with what you started to do. You can even say, you know what? I'm not going to make a big pot. I'm going to make a little pot. Okay? And so the Lord says, so you are with me. You're like clay in my hands. Okay? All right, let's, let's go forward. Very good. Let's stop there. See this. So what what does God do? What's his first action that we've just read about that Ashley read to us? Or, 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 or um, yeah. God announces a potential future. God announces, but he doesn't say right now it's potential. What does he announce? A future. 
I'm sorry, I just didn't hear. Destruction. Destruction. Announces destruction. Uprooting of a nation. Destruction. And then, what's he say in the next verse that Blake read to us? So God's announced it. He says, I am going to destroy. I am going to uproot. And then, what's he say in the next verse? Yeah, if the nation repents, then what? I'll relent. But God announced it. I thought it was a certain future. You see what prophecy is doing here? Prophecy is, is, is not... Um, uh, prophecy is not predicting a certain future. It's what it's doing... <laughs> prophecy exists uh, to activate God's people okay not to Richard Pratt would talk about it this uh, not to prog prognosticate yes what's prognosis yeah what something's going to be so he doesn't tell people hey Here's what I'm going to do. Tell some people, and then when it happens, you can say, told you so. <laughs> That's not what God is doing. He's not telling his people in advance um, in, these, in these prophecies so that, just so they'll know. Okay. Now, if you know dispensational uh, uh, charismatic eschatology, that's what that is. I'm telling you when Jesus is going to come back. So that you'll know. Um, but rather, what God is doing is activating. How do we see activation as what God is up to in verses 7 and 8 here? It moves them to repent. Yeah, what moves them to repent? The warning. The warning, the declaration. I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to uproot you from your land. I'm going to exile you. That's what he's talking about with Jeremiah. Okay? And right now, he's uh, in the early Jeremiah, he's talking with Josiah before, the, before any of the exiles. He's at about um, uh, six, 628, okay, right now, uh, talking here. And, and so he, he, tells, he tells them, you know, things, he, he announces things, um, that he's going to destroy them, to uproot them. But then he says, and what's the condition? If, what's the activation? What's, what's God want them to do? Repent. Turn from their evil ways. Okay? God does, does God want to destroy his people? No. But God will. It's in the covenant. Blessings and, curse, blessings and cursings, Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26. But God never wants to bring the curses on his people. And so he sends them prophets, and his prophets announce disaster. Verse 7, right? Uh, if, I, if at any time I announce a nation or a kingdom will be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation repents, and turns from its evil ways, then if, they, if that activates them to right behavior, repentance, turning from their evil ways to walking in my ways, what will I do, God says? What will he do? He will not inflict disaster. He will relent and not inflict the disaster that he had planned for it. See, God knows all potential futures. You know, back to the future, Right. He knows if you change any particular thing, you know, I, I think about these things sometimes, like, you know, what if I were in a Beatles recording session, you know, and they had all these versions. I've got the Beatles anthology and it has some, some songs that has different versions. And what they typically did is they went from a slower, almost country Western kind of feel to something that was more hard driving. That ends up being the final form <laughs> in most songs um, or something that's a little more acoustic and folksy. And then they typically speed it up. But I think, boy, if I were in the studio, I would be like, yep, that's it. Take that one. That's the final version. You know, but then I'd screw things up because things would change because the timing of it would change. And they'd start on the next song early before certain events had happened in their own lives. 
And so they wouldn't bring, you know, how that, that works and back to the future. Um, and, and so, but anyway, God, God comes to activate um, his people to change them. And so this gets at what we, um, what we've talked about a little bit before. Um, I'll just write it up here. In most communications in life, there are implied, you can see what I'm saying, or writing here, you can shout it out. Conditions. Yeah, implied conditions. Um, I've told, I've, I've told my son, I don't have a son. I've told, I've told my son, um, you want ice cream this weekend? Right before he's about to touch something I haven't told him to touch. I have two sons-in-laws, but I'm talking about little kids here. Okay. My son is about to touch something I've told him not to touch that he knows he's not supposed to touch. And I see him and he's about to touch it. And I see him and he sees me. And I say, you want ice cream this weekend? What's the implied? What, what's going on there? What's implied? If he touches the thing, then he won't get ice cream. Yeah. There's an implied condition there. Uh, if you touch that, you won't get ice cream. He understands the implied condition. I understand the implied condition, but I haven't spoken it. It's implied. Okay. Um, what's Jonah's message to the Ninevites? Your city will be destroyed. Does he tell them to repent? No. And look it up. His message to the Ninevites is you will be destroyed in 40 days. God has announced destruction. What happens? The king says, who knows, if we repent, maybe he'll not destroy us. The king of Nineveh, the king of the Assyrians, Nineveh was the Assyrian capital. The king of the Assyrians says, everybody repent. Put on sackcloth, do your ashes, nobody eat, fast, because who knows? Maybe God will relent. And what's what happens to Nineveh? It's spared. It's spared. Jonah's furious. <laughs> and Jonah says, what's he say to God? I knew. Jonah understood implied conditions. I knew. I knew this would happen. You tell me, you told me, tell them 40 days and God will destroy you. I knew you would bring this about. Jonah understood implied conditions that his, that God's declaring he would destroy Nineveh in 40 days did not mean there was a certain future in 40 or 40 days. 40, there was a certain future in 40 days. The people repent. They haven't been told to repent, but there's an implied condition in the announcement. And that implied condition is met. Repentance, turning, cease doing wickedness is what the king says. Cease your violence. And that's the, that's the thing that has come to Jonah at the beginning. I've seen the violence. I've seen the wickedness of Assyria. Go to Nineveh and declare to them in 40 days you'll be destroyed. And, and they, they meet the conditions, these implied conditions, and... We see that this was just from Jonah, a warning of a potential future. Now, God decrees all things. Did God know what the potential future would actually be? Yes. 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 Do any human beings know what the potential future will be? No. no. For all, it's all, for us, it's all potential. But God knew Nineveh would repent. God knew he just needed to declare through a prophet, Jonah, that they'd be destroyed in 40 days. He knew the king of Assyria would call his people to repent and to fast and to look to God, the God of Israel, for mercy. And God has Jonah write that book to northern Israel who would not repent. The point of the book of Jonah is the wicked Assyrians, who were probably the most violent war people that we know of in recorded history. Um, they, they would um, 
chop off heads and, and make a pyramid of them in the, the city gate of the city they, they defeated. They, they, they were brutal, more brutal than the other nations. God, God communicates through Jonah in his book, Assyria repented and you won't. These people who don't have the covenant, who barely know who I am except for the God of Israel, they repent of the prophets, but you won't. And so what's the activation that the northern Israelites receiving the book of Jonah? The book of Jonah is not written to the Ninevites. The book of Jonah is written after Jonah gets back, right? All these events have happened. Jonah gets back, writes the book, and gives it to the northern, northern Israelites. What's, what's their activation? What should they do? Them. <laughs> yeah, at least repent as much as the king of Nineveh. Don't be outdone by a non-believer. Don't be outdone by a non-covenant person. Don't allow Nineveh to be blessed more than we are. Get it? Okay. And so that's that's Jeremiah 18. There was a question somewhere. Yeah, Steve. So the prediction of a certain future, since God knows the beginning from the end. Yes then really he's functioning as a parent saying, yes. I'm motivating you. Yes. This is what, we're, what yes. we would tell our children. If you're using drugs, the yeah. certain future for you is you'll be dead. Yes. It's motivational. It's like yes. this is to get your attention because basically we've become too uh, passive or enmeshed with the culture yeah. that we've lost sight of how the culture is being lost. Mm -hmm. I mean, wouldn't that apply even to today and what world we live in? Yeah. That what's happening is a motivation for Christians yes. to cry out. Yeah. And and so, you know, it, it, God functions. And, and so, like, you know, God, Old Testament and New Testament calls himself father to his people. And the people are his children. And so, you know, if you see, uh, if, you, if there's heroin uh, below your son's bed, you know, and... and you pull it out and you say, um, you're going to die. That's not a prediction of a certain future. You don't want your son to die. You want to motivate. You're not prognosticating. You're not saying that so you can stand at his, at his, you know, over him, over the toilet, two seconds before he dies and say, I told you so. You're saying that because you want to motivate him to leave drugs so that he won't die. And so God says, I declare potential futures to motivate you to action so that you'll be blessed instead of cursed. Okay? Um, so let's read the next verse now. Where are we? I think we're up to you, Betsy. So verse, what, what are we on? Nine? Yeah. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. Okay. So it works both ways. When God declares blessing and the nation goes evil, okay, and this, this is true for churches, this is true for individuals, this is true, you know, uh, God, God says, well, I'll reverse that. I'll bring this cursing. I'll bring this discipline. Um, and just because I've said, you know, that, that I'm going to think about this. This is the promised land. You know, land flowing with milk and honey, protected from your enemies. You'll lend to many, but borrow from none. That's all blessing. But when God declares that blessing, it has this implied condition. And sometimes it's, uh, you know, not, not implied. It's just right out there. If you walk in my ways. If you don't depart from me, if you don't follow other gods and worship them, but if you do that, if you follow other gods and worship them, then I'll worship them. Then I will send you these curses. And so when you see these curses come upon you and Leviticus 26 gets at this, the, the reason for the curses, that the curses are to activate and the prophets he sends to the people who Old Testament prophets are saying, See all this crap that's happening to us right now? See how we're being oppressed by our enemies? See how we don't have rain in its season and our crops are failing? 
These are covenant curses that Moses talked about. He named them there in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. And the prophet comes and he reminds God's people of the law of Moses. And he tells them, so if you continue in this way, you'll be exiled. That's your potential future. So, you know, when you, when you look at Isaiah, Isaiah is talking about that with Hezekiah, who's living in, in you know, seven, Hezekiah is around at 700. And, and that's what happens. But Hezekiah repents and becomes good. And he pushes back exile for 100 years. Doesn't come till, till that later. So um, that's what we call last thing here. Um, so when God gives a warning of a potential future, um, what we see throughout Scripture is um, what what we can what we can call here um, um, some fun words for us here. Interhistoric contingencies. So, if the king of Nineveh, in history, calls his people to repent, in history, that happens, then the potential future is mollified, or changed, or adjusted, or amended. Then it can be mollified in terms of its severity, or in terms of its timing. Uh, and so, like with Hezekiah, when he repents and turns turns to the Lord, instead of trusting in fortifications and, and, and uh, fortified cities and those kind of things, when he turns to the Lord, he pushes back the um, exile to Babylon, to, to Assyria. So far, 100 years, it happens, you know, starting, you know, 605 to uh, uh, 586 or the, the dates of the... the the three deportations, he pushes, Hezekiah pushes it back so far through this inner historic contingency of his repentance and turning to the Lord that actually a different, um, a different world power has, has come to dominate. Hezekiah was around during the Assyrians, and when exile happens, they're no longer exiled by Assyrians, they're exiled by Babylonians because Babylonians have taken over the world. They've, they've defeated Assyria. Okay, and so the um, uh, prophecy, the warning of a potential future that's mollified or um, adjusted uh, based on based on the response. Okay, seems like that likely preserved Judah more than well, northern Israel. Yeah, Be because Babylon's uh, foreign policy was different, or their policy with defeated nations. Yeah. So northern Israel and southern Israel, Judah, they have the same Moses. Uh, but northern, southern Israel, Judah, has these righteous kings that keep pushing back <laughs> the exile, the ultimate covenant curse. So they'll have a bad king, a bad king, but then a, a righteous king. And so things will get better. And so they extend their time. And so there's a there's a 120 year difference between the exiles of the north and the south, because in the north, there are no good kings. They're all evil. And so they get to the, the ultimate covenant curse in 722, whereas in the south, where you've got eight righteous kings there, theirs doesn't happen until about 600 about 120 years later, because the predictions that come to the prophets of a potential future of exile is pushed back through these inter-historic contingencies, the contingency of, of their repentance and turning the people back to the Lord and worshiping only, worshiping only the Lord. Okay. Yeah, there's a... Um, I was just thinking, you know, it's the difference between God creating people and creating mankind 
Yeah. He loves his people. Yeah. So in a case like of Nineveh, he's almost using that city um, because he loves his people yes. to motivate them. And yeah. It's the same as now. I think he, it's like, you know, why does God allow bad things to happen? Mm -hmm. um, you know, he doesn't. Um, we do that ourselves. But, um, you know, he says if you're going to do it, you're going to do it. But as Christians, we can see things in other parts of the world and say, you know, I don't want to end up that way. Yeah. You know, kind of like the example with drugs. But it's it's just even a lifestyle where people end up lonely or, you know, a broken family and yeah. things like that. If we observe those things, we know that they're against God's will. Yeah. Um, you know, you best turn away from them and yeah. do whatever you can to avoid it. Yeah. Good, thanks. Okay, um, so uh, we'll, so that's the background for understanding Gog and Magog. And so we'll get to next week. Um, Gog and Magog will make more sense to you as we talk about Ezekiel 38 um, and how this uh, then um, gets reshaped um, as, as uh, uh, Jesus returns. But let's go, let's go ahead and pray.